lines as uh, we uh, open God's Word together uh, this morning. Keith didn't tell you about one of the new ministries that, that is coming up. Uh, it uh, was put together over the last couple of days. I'm excited to uh, see it happen. It's called Grief Share, and uh, it uh, isn't uh, for... Uh, um, the grieving that you would think of, but it's more of a south side uh, grieving uh, that seems to be going on. Some of you get that. Uh, some of you haven't gotten until uh, the Twins win today and the Sox will be officially out of playoff contention. But bear in mind, there is a team that you can root for that will not let you down. Amen. There's some real, there's some real Christians out there. <clears throat> let's get into God's word with all seriousness and joking aside. Let's get into God's word this morning. And I know I'll get some reports from some of you diehard Sox fans who will say you're moving your membership out of here. And uh, we don't want that. We love all people, both pagan and Christian. So, <laughs> gosh, it just keeps rolling off. So. Uh, so let's get serious now. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 uh, through 9. I want to uh, look at the second part of our series that we've called The Amazing Change. If you have been uh, met by Jesus Christ, if you have encountered uh, our Lord and Savior, then you know that the conversion of a soul is an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. Now, for, for many of us who have been saved for a long time, uh, we begin to forget how amazing it really is that God would send His Son, Jesus, to a world full of sinners and that that Jesus would live a life of perfection, would endure all kinds of pain and suffering, leaving every uh, lovely thing in heaven to come to earth, not only to live for us, uh, but to die for us. Even though we, we did not love Him, even though we did everything in our power to uh, try to shut Him up and try to uh, take His words and, and uh, tell Him that they're no good, uh, Jesus came and He died. He died for you and for me. And that's an amazing thing. And as we look at uh, Acts chapter 9, we look at uh, a synopsis of the salvation of an individual uh, who would change the world because of this amazing change that takes place in his life. As we look at the life of, of Saul, who would one day become the Apostle Paul after this amazing change, we see a, a study of a man who you wouldn't think would ever have a change. He would have been the last guy you would have thought that would have ever been a preacher of God's Word. And yet in Acts 9, Luke, the writer, speaks about this amazing change in Saul's life. And in fact, Acts 9, Luke gives a picture in one chapter of three days of occurrences that are taking place. Now, we don't know when uh, the Apostle Paul, who was Saul at that moment, came to know Jesus. But we know on that road to Damascus that something amazing took place. That from that moment on, Saul would never be the same. His passions, his desires, his pursuits would never be like they were before. But as we look at this study of this idea of conversion, I want us to be aware of something very uh, clearly because we in the evangelical world find ourselves putting a spotlight on this word conversion, on this word being born again. 
It's a catchphrase. Even those in the media understand what we're talking about, the spiritual rebirth. I was uh, watching on Larry King this last week, and, and the conversation turned to evangelicals. And they talked about the born-again experience. Now, I don't think they fully, I know they don't fully understand what that means, but they've heard it. It's a part of their vernacular. And they are trying to look into understanding what it is. But let's be uh, quite clear that the conversion experience isn't just that time when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you kneel down in prayer and give your life to Jesus. In fact, when you look at uh, the study of soteriology, the study of our salvation, you will see, depending on which theologian you're reading, uh, you're going to see an order of salvation. It's the ordus salutis, they call it. And in there you will see seven to nine different phases of our salvation. Conversion being right smack dab in the middle of it, the moment where we begin to realize salvation that has been uh, there since eternity past. I like what Alan Redpath says about this. He was one of the pastors at Moody Memorial Church here in Chicago. And he said, the conversion of a human soul is the miracle of a moment. But the making of a saint is a task that takes a lifetime. It's not enough for us to experience a Damascus Road conversion. That is a miracle in that moment. But God is calling us to leave the elementary truths of, of that moment to strengthen and to grow and to become holy and to live obedient lives. And that is what we are going to see as we study this amazing change. This wasn't just an experience, but it was a place in time where everything changed in Saul's life. And as a result of that, he would never be the same. Now, as we looked a couple weeks ago at Acts chapter 9, we see Saul is a man who had an extreme hatred for Christianity. In fact, uh, Luke doesn't tell us about this smart man who uh, uh, had all kinds of influence within the uh, temple priests and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of his day. Uh, he doesn't start by telling the biography of that. Luke's biography, who Luke, of course, is the one who wrote the book of Acts. Luke's biography of Saul is one that starts out with a mob. In Acts chapter 7, we see Saul uh, is the one who the people are uh, seeking approval to kill one of the Lord's disciples, Stephen. That's not a good way to start your uh, biography talking about you killing a man. And look at Acts chapter 9, where we'll be at for this morning. It goes on because Luke picks up this story of Saul again. And does he clean things up? No. Look at what he says in Acts 9.1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. What did he do? Why did he want to do that? Well, he went to the priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, any Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. What was Saul doing? Saul wanted to destroy the church. Saul was one of those guys, and, and you, you work with them. You may go to school with them. They may be your, uh, in your family. Uh, they may even be you that are sitting here today, sitting there. You, you don't want anything to do with Jesus. You don't want anything to do with Christianity. In fact, you would, do, you would go to great lengths to get Jesus out of your life and out of the lives of those around you. 
And maybe you've been a part of uh, a relationship with someone like that. They want nothing to do with it. At the mention of Jesus, they they say, get that garbage out of here. I I don't want to hear it. I I hate that stuff. There's a story of a man named Bob. And Bob was a man who seemed to have it all. He had a wife. He had a career. He had money. He had friends. Bob didn't live too far from here. In fact, Bob lived in the town of Waterman, just west of here. And Bob seemed, if you were to talk to his friends, they would say he had a good life. Things were going good for Bob. But Bob had one problem. Bob enjoyed drinking. And the drinking didn't stop with one beer and not a half a dozen beers, but it would move into starting with beer and then moving to liquor and hard liquor to boot. And Bob had a problem because when he uh, would start drinking, his anger and his rage that usually was kept in control uh, when he was sober would be unleashed. And what would happen is he would begin to destroy every relationship that he had. And while he had it all going for him, Bob had this Achilles heel, this area of weakness that would allow him to just devour and destroy his life. And so what happened? Instead of getting that under control, Bob got angry. His wife left him. He lost his job. And one day he walked into uh, my parents' family grocery store and he was angry. My dad came in. He knew Bob and he could tell that Bob had been drinking that day. And he knew that if Bob was drinking, that was not a good thing. And out of protection, he goes to kind of move Bob out of the grocery store as quickly as possible and uh, to make sure that everything would be all right. And my dad, led by the Spirit, and hearing this man's story and knowing Bob for some time, uh, Bob begins to utter words uh, full of profanity. Pointed to who? To the bottle? To his wife? To his friends? To his boss? No, to God and to Jesus Christ. And he begins to curse about how terrible Jesus is and how much he hates Jesus. That Jesus is no good. And he's a liar and he's a thief. We know that not to be true of Jesus and my dad, in some ways probably fearing for his own safety, uh, uttered nonetheless words that said, you may think that about Jesus, but it's not true. Jesus uh, came to die. Even as you point your finger at him, he came to die for sinners like you and me. And Bob said, forget it. Are you kidding me? What has Jesus done for me? Bill, you can keep your Jesus. I want nothing to do with him. Get that garbage out of here. In fact, I don't want to hear any more sermons. You know, you're in the wrong profession, Bill. He's a prophet. He didn't know it. But but he leaves the grocery store, and my dad doesn't hear from him for a couple weeks. And then one day, my dad's filling the milk case at the grocery store, and a police officer comes in. That meant one of two things when you had three, three boys. Number one... It meant, which one is it? And yet it had nothing to do with us as boys. It had to do with Bob. Bob was asked or was uh, uh, trying to be stopped uh, for a uh, just a simple traffic violation. And what transpires is Bob does not stop for the police officers. He flees because he's drunk. And he goes to his house and he holds himself up in his house. And he yells out from the window to the police officer who's trying to get in, I've got a gun and I'm not afraid to use it. And for two hours, the police do everything in their power except for going in to get Bob because he said, 
I'm not afraid to use my gun on you, and I'm not afraid to use it on myself. And for, for a couple hours, they sit there, they try to talk with Bob, try to get Bob to come out, and he says, no. He says, I want to talk to somebody. Go get me Bill Bedall, the grocer. <laughs> Police officer comes and comes and gets my dad, and he says, we got a problem, Bill. And my dad says, well, uh, buy a sandwich and we'll figure it out. And uh, he says, no, a sandwich isn't going to help. It's about Bob. And my dad says, you know, I don't think... Uh, what would Bob do now? Well, he's drunk. He's got a gun. He's in his house. He wants you. My dad says, you kidding me? I'm staying here. <laughs> and uh, they said, we really could use you, Bill. We could use you. That's the only way he's going to do it. We're afraid this might get ugly. Uh, do you trust us? He says, no, I don't trust the police. I trust the Lord. I'll go. Uh, they find, a, and I, I say this, turn the tape off. They find a bulletproof vest big enough for my, uh, my dad he said that was a fun part. I, I talked with him about that. Never had he thought he would ever wear something like that. They asked him if he wanted anything to uh, protect himself. He said, no. He said, I'll go in. He says, if I lose my life, I lose it for the Lord. He walks in and for the next hour and a half, he talks with Bob. He says, the house is completely destroyed. You can tell a man who is so enraged has been there. For an hour and a half, he talked with him, prayed with him, and told him about Jesus. And, two, and at that two-hour mark, Bob walked out of that house submitting himself to the police, but also submitting himself to Jesus. Now, now you say, how do you know that story? Did your dad come home and tell you that story? No, my dad's far more humble than I am. I would have called everybody and I would have... And what I would have said is, i got to tell you something, before I even witnessed to that individual, man, shots were being fired, I was leaping over the bushes, I had the Glock in, on, on my side, and uh, I tell you, there was a, a baby falling out of a window, and, and then they all got saved. How did I hear about Bob? Well, I was too young to know a lot of what was going on. This probably wasn't something that my dad would have talked about in great detail. But one day Bob came to that old grocery store in Waterman about three years ago looking for Bill. And he found Tim. He didn't know Tim. But what he learned, what, what I learned, was that Bob wasn't a man who just experienced one day Jesus, but that now he lives for Jesus. And he talks about Jesus. He's involved in his church. A man who you would have never thought would have gotten saved did. We look at a Bob this morning in our text. Let's look at the text this morning as we look to this man named Saul. Verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now as he neared Damascus, he was going to take care of the riffraff of Christianity on his way to Damascus. On that journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. Uh, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat 
or drink anything. Let's pray for our time in the Word. Lord, we come to You uh, this morning. And Lord, we are one of two people this morning. First of all, Lord, we look at this story, and if we have come to You by faith, And we resonate with this story yet again because it is a story of the blind now seeing, the lame now walking, uh, the dead now being alive. And we go back to our own salvation moment where we say thanks be to God for His indescribable gift, uh, the gift of Jesus Christ, which made a way for our salvation. Uh, But Lord, if we're not there, when we're in the other side of it, And that is we are one who, just like Saul, is heading in an opposite direction of where you would have us. We're living for self. We're pursuing our own desires and our own plans and will. And Lord, today may be the day where the light shines, where hearts are opened and lives are given to Jesus Christ again. So Lord, I pray for both. That in your way and through your word, you would speak to us as a people this morning. That we may experience this amazing change as Saul did. And all God's people said, Amen. Open up your outlines. Let's uh, move through this quickly. We don't have a lot of time. I wanted to break this up into two weeks, but I was afraid in breaking this up into two weeks, we may lose some of the instantaneous nature of what transpires. So uh, bear with me as we move quickly through this. See, if Saul is to come and to know Jesus, if if Saul is uh, to be one who is changed by Jesus, then there are some things that had to take place. And just as in Saul's life, we too need to be changed as well. And it involves some things. First of all, in your outlines, it involves a connection with the Savior. It involves a connection with the Savior. Now, what caused this amazing change in Saul's life? In week one, we know that uh, Saul had no desire to do anything with God and with Jesus Christ. Now, he was a part of religion. In fact, he was very passionate about religion, but it did not embrace who he was. It did not uh, cut through to the heart of Saul. And we know that what transpires is, is that Saul goes out on a mission to destroy the name and the mission of Christ. So what changed him? Now, men have come up with ideas of what might have changed them. Liberal theologians and even Jewish scholars have tried to say, this guy that hated Jesus so much, how do we counteract this idea that on a road to Damascus, to go to destroy Christianity, that all of a sudden he would change? He would go to the other side. Well... One of, uh, uh, one of the scholars, a guy named Renan, uh, says that it's the combination of Saul's guilty conscience as well as fatigue of the journey, eyes that were blinded by the noonday sun, a bout of heat stroke that all produced Saul to have a hallucination that he saw Jesus Christ. Now, that's a minority thought. Jewish scholars give one that's more uh, well-known, and what they say is is that Saul's supernatural encounter was as a result of his reoccurring epilepsy. And what they said is he had a grand mal seizure on the road to Damascus. Now, the problem with that is, is if that is the case, medical doctors will tell you that when an epileptic has a seizure, that there is very, very little, if any, recollection of what happened during the seizure. 
Now we know that Paul, uh, three different occasions, speaks about this encounter with incredible accuracy. This is what happened. This is what went on. This is what was said to me. So either we believe it to be a sunstroke and the blinding of eyes, or we believe it to be epilepsy. I love what Charles Spurgeon says on the second one. He says, oh, blessed epilepsy. If this brings conversions like this, there must be a holiday for epilepsy where we praise God for the giving of epilepsy because it takes a man from death and brings him to life. Or we believe that Jesus Christ encountered Saul on that road. We believe, because we believe the word to be God's word, that it's a connection with Jesus. Well, what does it involve, this connection? I, even before you get into your outline, just a couple quick things we must realize. First of all, this connection starts with God. Start there first. This connection starts with God. Now remember, Saul is going towards Damascus. He's not talking about some Christian pilgrimage that he's going on. He's not going on vacation. He's not doing um, uh, some sort of uh, timeshare up in Damascus where he's just going to enjoy some R&R. He's not going on a family reunion. He's going to round up the Christians and put them in prison. And while he does it, take a few, uh, give him a few beatings along the way. That's what he did. That's what he was all about. And all of a sudden, there is a connection with God. Well, who started that? For a connection to happen, someone has to initiate uh, that connection. It's as simple as someone handing out their hand and saying, good morning, nice to meet you. A connection doesn't happen with both people coming to one place looking face to face and the other saying, all right, we, well, let's connect. It starts with God. It starts with God. Now, Saul says, or in fact, Paul, when, uh, as he turns to Christ, he writes in the book of Galatians, Galatians 1.15, he says that this connection started at birth. He says in Galatians 1.15, I was set apart at birth. Now, did he know that? No. But God did. Understand this about your connection with God. It is not by chance that you have encountered God. God, before the foundations of the earth, had a divine appointment for your Damascus road. It was there. Before the foundations of the earth, God had on his heart and on his mind the salvation of your soul. But not only does it start with God, it happened all of a sudden. Look at what it says in verse 3, that suddenly... He wasn't a part of some revival. He wasn't a part of anything that was going on to experience this phenomenon. It happened all of a sudden. Now, Saul had shown no remorse, no repentance. Nothing had uh, produced this uh, thing to take place. Yet there was a time that was set, as if, if you will, uh, when we uh, tell our kids that they uh, need to sit out from playing games and stuff like that, my wife will go to the... Um, a clock on the oven, and she'll put in the time, and she says, when you hear the alarm go off, you're free to go. What that enables us to do is, number one, we don't forget that we've put our kids in timeout. I do that a lot. One time I, I did that to Noah, and uh, four days later I forgot that he was supposed to come out of timeout, and so uh, that's why we just, uh, never mind, I'll get in trouble for that. But uh, it's easier for Dad to remember if the punishment's been done or not. But, um, but we do that... Uh, because there's a time. Now, now the, the kids don't know when that time will be. It happens all of a sudden. We don't tell them how many minutes it's going to be. We don't even let them look at the clock. And all at some point in time, 
that clock hits zero and it starts to beep. I want you to understand something. When Saul was walking on that road, while he did not know it, there was a heavenly uh, counter going down. And as he's taking a step, I wonder if the angels were hearing, this is speculation, if the angels were hearing 10, 9, 3, 2, 1, hit it, Jesus. why I'm not on the worship team anymore. It was all of a sudden. That's what the new birth is all about, my friends. The new birth, yes, is a process, but there's a point in time where, where the light comes on, where the message sinks in, where the conviction of the heart bears witness that Jesus Christ is the Lord. It's all of a sudden. We can't plan it. In fact, Jesus told Nicodemus that it was like the wind. We, we, we don't see where it's coming from. All we can see is the consequences of it, the trees moving, the, the feeling of the force of this invisible uh, power on our faces, in our hair or lack thereof. And, and as a result of that, it happens suddenly. Finally, the, the thing I want to look at is it involves a specific connection, this conversion. It's specific. Look at verse 7, what it says. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Understand this. Uh, the, the heavens are pushed back. Jesus appears and only Saul sees Jesus. Only Saul can hear Jesus speaking to them. Another part in the, in the scriptures, it says that they heard what seemed to be like thunder. It seemed to be uh, thunder going around. I was, I was thinking about that, wondering if, uh, if every time we hear thunder, uh, might it be that Jesus is just having another Damascus Road experience and that we're listening and we're hearing just some wonderful uh, uh, waves of thunder and yet that is our God speaking to people. Again, speculation. I don't know if I'd put a position on that. I won't start a church on that, of course, but, uh, but that's, that's a neat thing to think about. That they heard this, what seemed to be like thunder. They heard this noise. They saw this light, but they did not see Jesus. Who did? Saul did. Who was, Je who was Jesus wanting to reveal himself to? To the whole group? In some ways, yes, because they experienced, wow, that, that doesn't happen in noonday. That, that kind of came out of nowhere. I wonder what that was. And then Saul, now Saul's blinded. What, what happened to you, Saul? Well, I looked and, and, and I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. Well, that would have been a great witnessing opportunity to those men that were around him. But they did not hear. They did not see what Saul did because it was specific. Understand this. While the gospel call is one that is general, we look out to, this, to the world and we see all that God has done. And God says that this reveals who he is. So that no man is without excuse. We believe in the general call of God that every man, woman, and child, even if they've not heard of Jesus, know about the power of Almighty God because God's invisible attributes are made known through creation, Romans 1. We also believe in the effectual call. The effectual call. Spurgeon once said that the uh, uh, general call of God is like thunder uh, on the horizon that fills the sky. But the effectual call of God is that lightning bolt that comes down from heaven and strikes a particular place. Saul saw the lightning bolt. The men around him saw the lightning in the sky. Both are needed for salvation. The general call, of course, 
and the effectual call. Well, what, what do we need to know about this? We're reminded of a couple things in this first point. First of all, we're reminded of the brilliance of our Messiah. Jesus pulls away the, the curtains of heaven and he declares himself. This isn't the first time he's done that. In fact, just a couple chapters before this, we see that uh, Stephen is being stoned. And as rocks are hitting him, Stephen looks up and he says, I see the Lord standing at the side, right, right hand of the Father. And he says, Lord, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Lord, I commit myself to you. So we see that. Of course, we know that... Uh, Jesus revealed himself on the Mount of Olives at the transfiguration where he goes up to a high place and Moses and Elijah are there with him and they reveal, he reveals himself who he was and the, and the men are frightened they're, they're afraid they say let's build some tents for you guys man you know whatever you want done we'll do it because they're revealed but you know what this is important for us to understand because As Christians, in a world of skepticism, in a world of darkness, we forget how brilliant our Savior really is. We forget because He has, in some ways, concealed Himself for the day of His coming. Uh, But we should never be remiss to remember that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Saul came into uh, a relationship with Jesus because the light pierced through the darkness. Now, then the second thing we see is that we're reminded of the blindness of men. Look at verse 7 again. Saul sees it. We talked about that being specific. He sees it, but the other guys don't see it. Now, there's an irony that takes place. Saul sees Jesus and is blind. The men don't see Jesus and they are blind. Did I get that right? They're not blind, physically blind. Paul sees Jesus physically And he goes blind. The men are spiritually blind. I am confused now. I don't know where I was going with that. You get it, right? Everyone say, man, I got it. Thanks for your grace. I I don't know. Keith, I can't talk to you late on on the phone anymore. So, So what takes place here? Let's get back to this. There's blindness. They don't see Jesus. Why don't they see Jesus? He hasn't revealed himself. Well, the Bible's clear that men and women in our sin were blind. The Bible says that as a result of our blindness, we cannot see God. We cannot respond to God. So God has to open our eyes for what we need to see, what we need to be able to be a part of. And as a result of that, we see that man uh, is blind. Sinful man is blind to the things of God. And let's Let me just share this uh, verse, John 9, 39. Just stay in the book of Acts for a moment. John 9, 39 articulates this truth. Jesus is speaking to to a group of individuals. And he says, uh, after they had, uh, had thrown him out, he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, the man asked? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus says in verse 37, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Of course, this is uh, an incredible experience that's taking place in this man's life. The man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus responds to the greater group of people, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. For our eyes to be opened, Jesus must take those scales off so that we can be connected with our Savior. There's a second thing we see this morning. It's not just a connection with the Savior, but involves conviction of sin. 
and involves conviction of sin. Saul encounters Jesus. And does Jesus come and say, hey, Saul, buddy, let's have a talk. Hey, I like what you're doing uh, down there. Things are going good for you. Business is good. You got tent making skills. Uh, you know, things are going good. No, that's not what happens. Is there uh, pleasantries that go? So does Jesus say, Saul, I'm Jesus. I want to be your friend. Let me, let me love you. He doesn't say anything like that. We see the conviction of sin. Well, how do we see that? Look in our text again and look at verse 4. Saul falls to the ground. He hears a voice. And what does Jesus say? He says, Saul, Saul. The first thing we see is that conviction of sin begins with a warning. It begins with a warning. What does Saul hear? He hears his name repeated twice. Three different... Oh, let's see here. Three, one, two, three. This is the fourth time in Luke's writings that Jesus declares twice a name. In t- Luke ten forty one, he says, Martha... Martha. In Luke 22, 31, he says, Simon, Simon. In Luke 13, 13, 34, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here he says, Saul, Saul. What what does that mean? In each of those, if you were to look at each of those texts, all of them have one common theme. When Jesus says your name twice, you're in trouble. If you are like me and my family, if you hear your middle name, you're in trouble. If you hear your last name, you're really in trouble. If your parents can't remember your name, you better start running for the fences. Jesus had that kind of way too. Saul, Saul, hey, there's a warning coming. This isn't some social visit. I got some business to deal with here, Saul. You're doing some things I don't like. So it begins with a warning, and and the Scripture's full of that for us. The Bible should never be that, that is, there's this Jesus and, and he's this big teddy bear. He's this celestial Barney who just loves people. And, and when you come, we're going to sing, I love you and you love me and we're a big happy family. That's not where salvation is found, my friends. And that so many times is what we're pitching to people. Come to Jesus. Accept Jesus. He's great. He loves you. And, and it doesn't, don't worry about anything else. And yet we see that it involves the conviction of sin. You want to know Jesus? Then Jesus is going to look at you as a sinner and say, Tim, Tim. Oh, we've got some work to do. Oh, Tim, you've let yourself go, haven't you? You've pursued those things of sin. Why, why are you doing that, Tim? There's a warning when it comes to the conviction of sin. Next we see it, it reminds us we're at war. Notice what what Christ says. He approaches Saul. He doesn't approach him as a friend. He doesn't approach him as a father. One of the commentaries says he approached him as an opponent. I don't like that idea of being opposed by God. James tells us, you want to be proud? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I I want grace from God, not opposition. And yet Jesus approaches him and and there's an opposition there that takes place. There's a blinding that goes on. It's as if Jesus is doing this spiritual blitzkrieg. He's laying him low. He's blinding him. And now he's speaking to him, not as a friend, but as an opponent, if you will. So what does this war tell us? First of all, write this down, that man is responsible for this war. In the garden, man shot the first shot of the war that has been waging for all these years. The moment we sided with the devil, 
The moment that we said yes to the devil and no to God is the day that we became the uh, mortal enemy of God. Paul would say later in his life, we're God haters. We're disobedient. We're insolent. We find ourselves at war with God. Why? Because Paul would later say in his writings that uh, we uh, have aligned ourselves with the prince of this world who's a part of the kingdom of the air, uh, the power that is working in this age. And, and we've fallen prey to it. Just like the devil, we pursue the things that he has. So who started this? We did. Who's guilty of preemptive war? We are. God comes in and he begins to deal with this battle once and for all to change man, especially Saul. It was unjustified. What had God done to us? Look at the text. And if you write in your Bibles or in your notes, the idea here in the text, when Jesus says, why do you persecute me? The idea here is, what have I done to you? What have I done to you, Saul? Have I hurt you in some way? Have I, have I wronged you in some way, Saul? What have I done that I deserve to be persecuted in this way? Man is responsible for it, not God. The second thing we see is that uh, we must be reminded that God relates to his people in a particular way. Notice what he says. Why do you persecute me, Saul? Well, we know from history that Saul and Jesus would have been uh, at some point in their life contemporaries, meaning they lived at at a similar time in life. They lived in the same area. This wasn't hundreds of years after Jesus but it would have been around that same time. Now, Saul, we don't know at any point, whether through his writings or through anyone else's, that Saul ever met Jesus. But there's no question that if Saul, and because of Saul's response, that Saul knew of Jesus. There's there's questions whether or not Saul uh, knew and and was a part of some of the uh, activities that took place as a spectator. I wonder, as, as we speculate for a moment, uh, maybe Saul was a part of one of the crowds that, that uh, was watching Jesus. And as a young Pharisee, Saul is sitting there listening to this Nazarene and he's saying, he's of the devil. What do you mean you can, you can uh, do these things and, and, and you think you can break the law and, and you say the law is not the law, but it, but it is God Uh, who establishes and and he's got his guys picking grain on the Sabbath and and he's got guys picking up their mats who have been uh, lame for all these years and they're walking. Uh, God doesn't do that. The devil does. Jesus is a part of the devil. I wonder if Saul had seen some of that. We know that Saul hated Christ because he hated the followers of Christ. But notice how Jesus relates. He says, you persecute me. Nowhere in scripture do we see that Jesus ever had a hand laid on him by Saul. Nowhere. Who had he laid his hands on? Christ's followers. What is Jesus saying? You mess with me, or you mess with them, you mess with me. I have told you the story, I think, before. My freshman year of high school, for a short time, my brother uh, was, uh, was around for his senior year of high school. And uh, for the first uh, probably about three or four weeks, uh, Chris was around and it was good and it was bad. It was a blessing and a curse to have a senior brother um, in, in your school. It was not a good thing when I found out I had gym class with my brother and all his friends. That wasn't fun. I, I never changed in the locker room. I stayed away and uh, would go into one of the other bathrooms. I was scared for my life. You go in there, people don't come out. But one day it was a blessing. In fact, I believe it was the first day of school. I uh, found myself in the wrong place at the wrong time with a big old senior uh, looking at me saying I had taken up his personal space or something stupid like that. 
And all I remember is him grabbing my shirt and looking at his uh, uh, clenched knuckles before me as I'm about to devour my first knuckle sandwich of my high school career. Closing my eyes, waiting for the beating of a lifetime, I remember the words say, let him go, he's with me. Opening my eyes ever so slightly and seeing, and seeing not the fist, but this bully looking at my bigger brother and saying, oh, I did not know he was with you. He says, he's not just with me, we're family. You know, when we go after one another, when unbelievers go after Christians, it's not that they just hurt us, but Jesus looks down from heaven and he says, you're hurting me. You mess with them, you mess with me. We're family. Be reminded of that, Christians, as we encounter one another, as we spend time with one another as Christians. This isn't just for the pagans to hear. This is for us to hear as well. You start attacking your brother and sister here at church. You start saying bad things about them. Jesus is looking down from heaven, and what he's saying is, is Tim, when you speak about my child like that, you're not just saying it about Keith or Scott or Ray. You're saying it about me, and they're with me. Be very careful how you respond to your brothers and sisters because you're speaking it to Jesus because he relates to us. Next, we see our rejection of Christ makes us guilty. It makes us guilty. Why the warning? The persecution? The confrontation? Why all that? Was was Jesus going to say, Oh, Saul, you naughty, naughty boy. You're a bully. Uh, You know, you've been bad. Now it's time to pay the piper. No, that's not what what is taking place. These are all symptoms to a bigger problem in Saul's life. What, What had happened? Saul had rejected Christ. The reason for this confrontation is Saul had rejected Christ. When you get to heaven, your sins will be laid before you uh, as an unbeliever. But the question won't be, why did you do all these sins? Wow, you you stole and and you looked at things you shouldn't have and you thought thoughts you shouldn't have and you said things you shouldn't have. Uh, All those are symptoms. The real issue is going to be, what did you do with Jesus? Did you reject him or did you receive him as your Lord and Savior? It has to do with your rejection or acceptance of Christ. Finally, we see that, uh, uh, that this conviction of sin creates a weight that we must carry. It's a weight that we must carry. Acts 26.14 adds, Saul adds, or Paul at that moment, adds a, a part of the story where he says, Jesus appeared to me and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it, isn't it hard to kick at the goads? Okay, what's that mean? The goads. What do you mean kicking at the goads? Well, that was a term that was used that Saul shares with King Agrippa that speaks about Saul's life as he's coming to that place in Damascus. What transpires? We see the following. Jesus says, Saul, you've been kicking at something, haven't you? And Saul's, yeah, I have been kicking at something. There's something that keeps festering in me. Well, a goad was a a sharp object that was placed on a long uh, stick that would be used to hit oxen. And what it would do is get going oxen and the farmer would take the stick that had that sharp end to it and he would hit the oxen with it. And it wouldn't just be to slap them, but it would be there to stick inside their skin. Now I'm grossing some of you out, I know. And what would happen is, is the guy, uh, the, the farmer would kind of uh, play with it a little bit and it would just continue to fester and continue to get into the side of that oxen. And the oxen had two choices. Number one, it would try to kick at it, which would only uh, make it fester and make it get in even deeper. Or they could do what the farmer 
told it to do. I can either go in that direction or I can kick at it. What does Jesus say? You're kicking at it. And it's creating a weight. It's creating pain. Saul, don't you want to give it up? Well, what, what, what were the goads in Saul's life? Very quickly, uh, Chuck Swindoll writes in his great book, uh, Paul, a man of grit and grace, says this. The first goad that he would speculate on is that the goad of um, Jesus' life and ministry. And the idea there is that even though he hated Jesus, deep down inside, there probably had to be some questions. You know, Jesus, what he was saying was, was pretty good. And you know what? He died on that cross. He didn't say much. And, and now there's word of a resurrection. Now, what do I do with that? I know he's of the devil. He's got to be of the devil. But, but does the devil resurrect people from the grave? I don't know what to do with that. And so there seems to be this guilt that takes place. The second thing we see is that uh, the goad uh, was seen in the uh, death, the peaceful death of Stephen. Now remember, Acts chapter 7, they go and they say, Saul, we want to we kill Stephen. They say, bring the stones. And they throw the stones down on Stephen. And what does Stephen do? Does he cry and say, stop beating me? Does he cry and say, how dare you people? You're all pagans and you're going to hell. I hate every one of you. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. I wonder if Saul had a lump in his throat. Mm, where did that come from? What kind of guy would be stoned and leave it in the hands of God to not hold it against them? The final one that we see is the life and ministry of the Christians. It seems that time and time again, Saul would go and get these people and they would... They would look to heaven and they would say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Lord, if it means I've got to die, I die at the hands of Saul. And they were peaceful. And these things were used in Saul's life to be goats. To sit there and Jesus being that heavenly farmer keeps hitting Saul. And, and at that point and point after point, Saul is kicking. He's fighting it. And at this moment at the Damascus Road, Saul says... I'll do what you say. I'm going to stop here at this point because we're no, there's no way we're going to get through all of this and it's important stuff and that's why I thought it would be a two-week series. Either that or the elders give me three hours to preach and uh, we know that ain't happening. But, um, but before we do, let me close out with this. Where are you at this morning? Have you had a connection with the Savior? Have you had a connection with the Savior? Have you come to a place and in a moment in time where Jesus has revealed himself to you? Maybe not like he did with Saul. Maybe not opening up the heavens and, declare, and displaying himself for you to see. But maybe he's doing it right now. Where your heart is being moved in a way that it's never been moved before. And I don't mean indigestion. I don't mean emotion. But you're sitting there saying, Is this Jesus? Is he all that he says he is? Well, if he is, and you're experiencing that, you're going to experience some conviction. You're going to experience the, the, the hitting uh, of Jesus. You know, I see it. I've got some family members that, that hate Jesus. They don't want nothing to do with Jesus. And anytime I bring up Jesus, they don't bring that stuff up. And I say, well, who do you think Jesus is? Well, he was a good teacher. How can you hate a good teacher so much? That's a goad. It's a goad in the life of an individual who hasn't given themselves to Jesus. They have to look at Jesus' life and they say, well, he was good. 
He's one of the greatest men that ever walked the earth. Well, why do you hate him so much? I don't agree with everything Gandhi said, but he seemed to be a pretty good guy. I don't go around beating him up. I don't go around telling anybody. He says, you know, I read the story about Gandhi. Oh, I don't want to hear that story about Gandhi. He was a good man. But yet that's what sinners many times find themselves doing because there's a goad that is taking place. Well, the question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to kick or are you going to receive? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and Lord, much in this text. So much to pull out and to take away. Uh, Lord, we don't have enough time and we don't have enough uh, weeks in the next year to pull out all that transpired because this is an amazing thing that has taken place. So Lord, we uh, come to you and, and we ask for you to open our hearts, open our minds, change us. Lord, if we are like a Bob in this world who has waved our fa- finger at God, spoken curses about God, that Lord, you would arrest our hearts in a, in a new and powerful way this morning. Uh, Lord, if, if it is just the gentle uh, moving of your spirit, Lord, that we would receive that as well. And Lord, for the majority of people here who have bowed the knee to Jesus, who have been connected with you, who have sensed the conviction of sin, Lord, that we would go back to that place and remember this great salvation that we've received because we are so prone to neglect it every day. Also, Father, we give this time to you, thanking you for your word and all that it contains, for it is the light unto our path. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand so we can continue to worship this morning.